And please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Titus, chapter 2, 11 through 15. This is our Thanksgiving service sermon. After having received the grace of the Lord, we are exhorted to walk in that grace and to follow the Lord wherever he goes. And here is such a text that teaches us not only the grace of God, but also what the grace of God teaches us. So, having that before you, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15. These are God's words. Let us receive them as such. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Amen. May God bless this word to us. and Let us pray for its preaching. Lord God of heaven, uh, the minister comes before the people of God and thou hast said in the word that we have even heard that we are to, I am to speak these things and exhort these things and rebuke with all authority and that no man is to despise these things that I preach. However, Father, we know that this is true only insofar as I faithfully preach the word. And so we pray, Father, that your servant would preach faithfully the word of God and that it would come with the authority of Christ as it does come out of the word of God. And so we pray, Father, that the Spirit would now fill the preaching, that it would not be in demonstration of the wisdom of man, but rather in the power of God. And we pray, Father, that you would make us all know in the preaching that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Help us count this word as our precious food. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever we have been blessed to receive the grace of the Lord, especially as we have received the grace of the Lord at the Lord's Supper, we must know the answer to the question, why have I been given this grace from Christ? Why have I been given this grace from Christ? And the simple answer, and maybe you might think it is far too Simple is this, something like this, boys and girls, children. It is to better live for Christ. We are given grace from Christ to better live for Christ. To have grace to help me to better live as his spouse. You know, this communion season, we have thought on the loveliness it is of Christ and what the glory it is to us to be his bride. I am engaged to be the Lord's. We have considered this over the communion season. And what we receive grace for in this present world is to better deny myself to live for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That the life that I now live is in view of him giving himself for me. That in all things I seek to be pleasing to him. And these things cannot be done. I cannot, as the bride of Christ, please my husband unless I have grace for my husband. But I have been given grace for my husband this day in order to better please him. And our text is full of this theme. 
that we are to uh, embrace the grace given to us, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That thought permeates this text. And that's the, the, the lens by which we will look at it. We see here that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ourselves, looking for our blessed hope, but also remembering that this blessed hope, Christ, has given himself for us. And in view of him giving himself for us, we are to live for him. And we have seen at the supper today, he has given himself to us. And so now we live for him and him only. And so to that end, our theme is grace given to deny ourselves and live for Christ. Grace given to deny ourselves and live for Christ. We are to exercise the grace we have given. And so we have three headings to that effect tonight. First is the lesson of grace, the sight of glory, and the zeal for good. Uh, The lesson of grace, the sight of glory, and the zeal for good. And so first we come to the lesson of grace. And this is where we will spend the bulk of our time. Well, as we open up our text, and um, it struck me, I don't think we've actually been in the book of Titus as far as preaching any sermons in it. So let me give you a little bit of background. In this short epistle, the Apostle Paul has been instructing a minister named Titus, a man that he called mine own son after the common faith, meaning Titus was likely converted under the Apostle Paul's ministry. Uh, You see, Throughout the New Testament, Titus is a kind of uh, trusted fellow servant of the Apostle Paul. Now, in this epistle, which we haven't read all of it, but if you look at it uh, in the opening of it, you find that Paul had left this man, Titus, in a place called Crete to help with the organization of the churches there. He tells them what is needful. So we often look at this text, or not this text, but this uh, book in order to understand what faithful elders ought to be. So because he had set Titus in Crete to um, establish faithful elders to raise up men for office. And he also teaches uh, Titus what to teach the church in terms of sound doctrine, in terms of how a converted people are to live as Christians now which is why earlier in this chapter, which we didn't read, Paul gives instructions to five categories of believers. Older men, uh, older, um, uh, younger, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves, these five categories. Because those who are coming into the church needed to understand how to live as Christian people. And Titus would know how to well-order the lives of the converts in Crete. Now, this is especially needed And we often remember this uh, very vivid uh, uh, description of how Paul reminds us of how Cretes or Cretans are thought of. You remember in the first chapter, verse 12, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. This is what Titus is dealing with, isn't he? He's dealing with the people, these Cretans who are coming out of paganism, who have an ungodly character and naturally are among the worst of humanity. This is who Titus is dealing with. And even when these people, right, he is in Crete, and he's dealing with these who are converted by God's grace, there is still residual Worldliness. There's still this residual idea that uh, of whatever they have learned as Cretans have accreted 
in their soul. And these things have to be dealt with. These things have to be sanctified out of them. And they need to be shown the truth. And they need to be sanctified by the truth of God, by the Holy Spirit working in the Word of God. And as we come then to this portion of the epistle we consider tonight, that background is quite helpful in understanding the text that is before us. Because, let's just connect ourselves to Crete, it is scarcely different for us, beloved. We come out of a society hardly better, if better, than Crete. Right? As we've thought upon it in our preparatory services, we come out of a very worldly society. An incredibly worldly society. Um, we come from a place where good is called evil, and evil is called good. We come from a place where lust is treated as virtue, where male and female relationships are completely disordered, where it is just fine to believe in a false god, and what harm is there in that? You do what you do. Where greed and usury are the modus operandi, where You know, you think of things like this, where our society says so flippantly, and we put on our currency, in God we trust, and yet we deny him and we say he cannot have a place, the true God anyway, cannot have a place in our government or our schools. Even presidential candidates that are Hindus are saying that they trust in God. And we accept these things in the so-called conservative party. But we do not in our society know God We don't know God's own word. We do not want his son to rule over us, even as he is the king of kings. You almost wonder, if Paul had cited this about Cretans, what would he say about Americans? It staggers the mind. I hardly think the Cretans thought that a woman could be a man. A ridiculous thought, yet one that is in our society. And so this is where we are coming out of, just like the people of Crete, are coming out of a terribly disordered world. And so with that background, let us look at verse 11. Even as we consider the evil of the the thief on the cross and the evil of the Cretans, verse 11 is our great gospel hope once again. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And we say praise God for that. Knowing our context, that is a very helpful saying, isn't it? Because Paul said, Titus, God has come to save all men by His grace, even Cretans. Even those that their own people say are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. God has come to save even such as those. And so we first rejoice in the truth. Jesus Christ saves Cretans and Russians and Africans and Chinese and even Americans. Even those with the most wicked backgrounds. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. No group of people, no class of people are without hope. No sinners are without hope. Male, female, slave, Jew, Greek, doctor, janitor, homeless, wealthy, drug addict, straight A student. The grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men because all men need it. We saw that at the table this morning to confirm the truth of the word. We often are um, astonished by how Um, many different social categories and ethnicities and walks of life that our people come from. We don't seek these things out necessarily, but we rejoice in the fact that God brings many people of all kinds together. The grace of Christ has appeared to all men. And it is a gift. It is a grace. It is the goodness of God only. 
It is not of our merit by which we are saved. We saw that at the table this morning when we freely took Christ's body and blood. Nothing we had to bring but our sin and our faith that he has redeemed us completely. And what the grace of God accomplishes is absolutely astonishing. You know, Cretans, liars, evil beasts, transformed by God's grace into Christians. Right? Cretans become Christians. And that's really the glory of the gospel, isn't it? That the worst men in this world can become saved. Well, you know, these are the things that we meditated on this morning. And the problem is that often after hearing these things, so many of us are tempted to just close our Bibles and go home. Right? Uh, we've heard of the grace of the Lord to save us. And yes, it is glorious. It must always be at our forefront. But this is not the final word in the Christian life. In many ways, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of a new life, of a heavenly and holy life, brethren. Our salvation is just the beginning. In other words, we are being sanctified and we are to pursue that sanctification, that growing in grace to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what the grace of God teaches us in verse 12. The grace of God which bringeth salvation teaches you this thing, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. How many of us have learned this lesson of the grace of God, that it teaches us that we are to live as holy ones? You are called to live a godly life. Cretans are called to live as Christians. And to say my former life as a Christian, of course you can still have an identity as a part of a people group, that's not the point. But my identity in terms of what I am morally is no longer defined by being American and the values of America or of Crete. My values are of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in the sixth chapter of Romans, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? This is what the grace of God teaches. That we are to live as godly men and women. If anything, knowing the love of God in Christ that we have seen in the supper this morning, this ought not to be something we are reticent of. We shouldn't say, oh, what a terrible thing, I must live for God. No, it should compel us. It should constrain us to live for him. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we uh, were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should what? Not henceforth live for themselves, or unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15. The Christian no longer lives for themselves. They live for Jesus Christ. And that ought to be your motto for life. It's simple. It might sound trite. But I no longer live for myself. I live for the one who gave his life for me. Christ gave his life for us, and we in return give our life to him. That is the exchange to be a living sacrifice, as Paul put it in Romans 12, saved by God to live for God. And that's really as simple as the sum is, isn't it? You think about this, just think about gratitude. This is a Thanksgiving sermon, that's why we have these. How unthankful a people would we be to leave the table and to see Christ who gave 
all of himself for us and then live for ourselves and not for him. We would say the love of Christ doesn't constrain us if that is our thinking, right? Well, I trust then you are interested in living for Christ. And so in verse 12, you will find both positive and negative duties toward him. And that's how the scripture teaches you to live. Uh, you put off the old man, the Cretan, and you put on the new man, the Christian, which is made in Christ's own image. You'll find that in Ephesians 4, for instance. Uh, these two terms that we've considered before, mortification, the putting uh, to death the old man, which is corrupt, and then vivification, which is bringing to life uh, the new man, which is made after Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is done by the grace of God, both mortification and vivification. And if we do not do both, we will be spiritually lopsided. And many Christians are, and they have an uneven walk with the Lord. And, you know, boys and girls, you think about this. If one leg were shorter than the other, you would walk around in circles. And this is how many of us walk around in circles, because we don't seek to both put to death the old man, as well as grow and renew the new man made after Christ. You know, so many of us, if we pursue sanctification, we may only seek to put to death lust, but not put on godliness and grow in righteousness. That will still be a grotesque man and not Christ-like. And I've said this before, but to think on Christ is not really to think that this is the man that never once lied, never once um, lusted. No, your thoughts are almost always in the positive direction. This is the man who loved. This is the man who gave. This is the man who blessed God and blessed neighbor. Right? This is what defines Christ, and this is what defines the Christ-like life most of all. Yes, we must mortify our sin, but we must also put the new man. We must think of uh, these Christly graces and virtues. And what we must do as we walk in the, in the Lord is evaluate ourselves. Where am I and how am I doing in both of these necessary duties? Putting to death the old man and putting on uh, the new man. Let's consider mortification, which we find here in this phrase, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Ungodliness and worldly lusts. What are these things? Well, ungodliness is of unbelief and irreligion. Right? The old man is corrupt in that way. Uh, your old man does not adore or fear God. It does not esteem God as God, who is almighty, who is our creator, who is holy, who has a right and a claim to me. Irreligion, ungodliness. And so, you think of it this way, the old man has a little problem with sinning because he desires sin and not holiness. And so he doesn't desire God. He doesn't want to worship God. He doesn't treasure the things of God. He does not put God ahead of himself. That is the corrupt old man. Uh, whenever there's a conflict between God and himself, he wins. This is the person that must be put away. This is why, as we thought about the communion preparatory sermon on spiritual mindedness, this is why you struggle with that. The old man is full of ungodliness. Closely intertwined to ungodliness in our text are worldly lusts. This love and desire for the world and the things in the world. Your covetousness of this world and its sensual and earthy ways. We heard about this too in our sermon on spiritual mindedness. And as these sermons are meant to work together, I'm not going to repeat the marrow of that sermon, but simply remind you of 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
The old man does not love God. The old man loves what? The world and the things of the world. The worldly ways, John says, pride of life. Right? The pride of the things of this world. Lusts of the flesh and eyes. Sensuality. Just as Eve saw that the fruit was pleasant to her eyes. This is what worldliness uh, longs for. And you think about this. What it, it, it produces. Uh, her, she and her husband... Our first parents threw away God for a taste of fruit. And that essentially is what ungodliness and worldliness is like. To throw away God for a bit of carnal pleasure that is momentary. Even Christians, I was talking to a brother, will justify all kinds of worldliness under this erroneous view of Christian liberty. There's a right view of Christian liberty, don't get me wrong. And what you have to understand is that the old man craves arguments that excuse him for not living for Christ. What harm is there in loving the stuff of this world? I have liberty. What harm is there in watching carnal movies? I have liberty. Ask them in return, though, those who say I have liberty, if they can show up to a prayer meeting or a Bible study. What will they say? I have the liberty not to. Isn't it interesting? This is where things really are at. The old man deceives us. The old man will tell you, you are at liberty not to pursue God and you are at liberty to pursue the world. This is the deceitfulness of sin. Examine your motives, brethren, for why you pursue what you pursue and what you do not pursue. So the old man has a lack of reverence for God and has a love of the world. And that's what the Bible says is enmity with God, the ways of Cretans. Now, the directive for you here, and this is the verb, this is the imperative, I believe it's, uh, here it's the word deny. The grace of God teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. This is the commandment for you and me to take note of, deny. Have you ever thought on what that word really signifies to you? Think of how profound a word it is and the meaning that is here. Boys and girls, what does the word mean? It means to say no. It means to say no to someone. This is a good way for you to think on this in relation to the old man. You are to say no to your own self. You are to say no to your own self. How often do you say no to yourself, beloved? How often do you say no? Oh, my soul, I cannot do it. Oh, my soul, that is ungodly, even though I desire it. Oh, my soul, I must not have it or lust for it. Oh, my soul, I have had my fill of good things. Anything more than this is gluttony. Oh, my soul, I must deny my fear of man to live for God. And so on and so forth. This is a necessary spiritual action by the grace of God that you must do often. And if we're not doing it, then there's something lopsided in our growth in grace. We have to say no to ourselves. You and I are going to have to deny ourselves. That's an act of the will. You recently heard this in Luke's gospel. Luke 9.23, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, how often? Daily and follow me. It is a truth that the hardest person to say no to is yourself. Absolutely so. And if we are not, this is a barometer, how often do you say no to yourself? You know you ought not do a thing or you must not spend more time in the world or crave after these things and you've had your fill of good things and yet you go more and more and more and you don't say no. Ungodly. 
In fact, it's a sad fact that we find it easy to deny God and hard to deny self. And that needs to sink into us. Our inclination is it's very easy to say no to God and yes to self. What a terrible thing that is. Grow in grace to mortify self. But we also, as we thought of those as negative duties, we grow in Christ-likeness, which is here in the second part. We deny ourselves to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. This is showing you that the Christian is separate from the world. That these former Cretans are not to live as Cretans were in this present world. Let's take these three, soberly, righteously, and godly, one at a time. What does it mean to live soberly? It's not to indulge yourself, but to live in moderation. Curbing your appetites and your passions. This principle is one, again, as Americans, that is harder for us in our society. Our society caters to excess and messages of entitlement that tells a poor person that they have every right to a $1,000 iPhone. So get on a payment plan. That you deserve this and that and the other thing but you are to cheerfully and graciously live soberly. And you are to deny yourself to do it. And you would think about this through sober living, right? not indulging our passions, even lawful things, not indulging in these things. You find that you have more to bless others. Isn't this the beauty of it? Right? You have more of your time to give to God in His service, more of your money as well to bless God and neighbor. Right? Sober living has many other benefits in order to fulfill the greatest commandment. Love God and the other like it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And that leads to the second here, which is we are to live righteous lives. We are to do what is just to all men. We are to do good to others. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10 Salvation has come to all men and we are to do good to all men, especially those in the church. The reason, why is it that we don't do good to all men? It is because we do not often deny ourselves, isn't it? We're always thinking of self and we're never thinking of others, right? Uh, We do not tell ourselves no, but we say no when it comes to serving others. We become weary of well-doing. And even when we think on doing good, what's our question? What have they done for me recently or lately, right? And self inserts itself between us and and living righteously, we are to deny ourselves as well so that we may uh, do justly to all men. Ask if this thought of doing righteously to others is ever in your mind, especially after communing with your brethren at the table. You didn't just commune with God, you communed with your brethren. And so think if you have any thought of doing justly and living righteously. Are you going to leave your brethren behind and all men behind in your prayers and actions? Uh, We being many are one as the church, so let us do justly one to another. Third, we are to live godly. We are to live holy lives and walk before the Lord with integrity. We are to adore him. We are to bless him. We are to worship him. We are to serve him. What is the aim of the life of the believer to be? The glory of God. Um, Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, to live godly is to consecrate yourself to God. You need to give yourself to the Lord. 
Right? Take the desire you had for him at the table and bring it into the weeks ahead. Do you have any sense? You know, what a strange thing it is. I desire Christ at the table, but I don't desire to walk with him day by day. These things ought not be so, brethren. These things ought not be so. Um, how can we run to the table in delight and then say, you know what, I won't live a godly life? Even though the very purpose of the table we are hearing was to give you grace to live a godly life. You know, the very best way to live and put away the old man is to deny the old man and not God. Never saying no to God, always saying no to self. And what a challenge it is, right? The apostle here wrote that this is how we must live in this present world, because this present world is contrary to living for God. And we must never forget it, that this world is saturated in a philosophy that is totally and entirely against God. And we have to check everything it teaches against the word of God. This world is not neutral to God. It is against him. And you are trained by this world to not think of God and his ways. In fact, the world is going to come into conflict with the world ways of God. And you must be aware. The world is going to be like Satan to Eve, affirming your sinfulness over and over again. Be what you once were. And it will never, ever move you into a deeper walk with the Lord Jesus. And you have to realize that because you're going to look very strange and act very strange to the world. And you must be okay with that. Because if you are not okay with that, you will never have a deeper walk with the Lord Jesus. Well, the apostle here does not leave us without something glorious to fix our eye upon. Because if we just keep our eyes on this thought that we are losing the world and its things... We may well walk in despair, won't we, children of God, that Christ is this miserly, miserly Savior, and He's stingy against us and uh, towards us, and He just doesn't want us to have enjoyment. Without realizing the truth, He's given us something far better. And the thing is, right, we are, I spoke to a brother about this, we are too easily pleased, aren't we, with the world and the things of this world. And so let's crave for something better in our second heading, the side of glory. Well, verse 12's command is to deny ourselves. Behold the blessed command in verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the heavenly side of Christ that the Christian has. This is where we look. We don't look at the world. We look here that there is a blessed hope and a glorious appearing. This is the second coming of Christ in which salvation will be fully realized. You know, Christ our Savior here that we have partook of at the supper, he is called the great God. He himself is the great God and our Savior. And when he appears a second time, he will not appear in humility as a servant in his first incarnation, but he will come with glory, the glory of God, radiant and shining upon him. And then the wicked, and then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Second Thessalonians 2 8. This is where we look. We look unto the glorious appearing of our great God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the brightness of his coming. This is where our attention is affixed to heaven, the end of all things of this earth, and the glory to come. 
And if we would, as we've heard in our series or our sermons on heaven and the heavenly life, spiritual mind, every possible thing in this world that you will deny pales in comparison. This is why at the end of his life, right, we remember the Apostle Paul, if you just flipped backwards um, to uh, his uh, 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 end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Why is he willing to lose his head? Because he loves the appearing of the Lord. And he will deny all things, even his life, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's looking forward Truth is, what do we lust for and long for? We lust for and long for things that will rust away, that is as ash, that is as dung, really, compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Why lust for dung? Why do you and I lust for trash and filth when we ought to lust for Christ? Of course, if you don't know Christ, you wouldn't know the difference between dung and Christ, would you? Whatever is as dung in comparison to Christ must be put in their proper place or completely be put away. We ought to pant and long for what is coming, what is promised for us. And you think about what is coming for us, the the second coming of Christ and the glory of God appearing. It'll usher in two things, the everlasting destruction of sin and wickedness forever from, from you, believer, and the glorious full salvation of both soul and body in eternal blessedness that you would have a full fruition of God in Christ. Does the glory of God in the face of Christ, maybe it doesn't yet dazzle you, but do you even have a desire for it to dazzle you and to take your heart away from this world? Is it that the luster of this world is so bedazzling to you and it's the luster of excrement so bedazzling to you that his glory is insignificant. I fear for many of us it is. Reverse this all, child of God. Think on Christ as he is in the very word of God. See God's glory in Christ and desire him. I'll cite Psalm 27 verse 4 once again in our communion season. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You know, there is a a Christian here who is so enraptured and enamored with the beauty of the Lord that it is the one thing he desires and the one thing he seeks after and the one thing he wants for eternity. And, And when you live that way, nothing here compares to the perfection that is in God. And I will cite Psalm 73 again then. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You need to live this way, and I must too. And and this is where the strength of our heart comes, isn't it? We even thought about this last week. Spiritual mindedness is life and peace. When I look upon God as my desire, that then is the strength of my heart, as he is my portion. 
And so to deny ourselves, this is where we look. We gain this better thing. If I would deny myself the hope of glory, Christ in you. We cast off the yoke of the world to gain this one better thing. And our denial of ourselves is really telling our soul, telling our soul this, my soul, oh my soul, I deny myself to gain one far better. And as we remember, another theme in our communion season is that to look upon Christ is to be transformed by Christ. You know, we will, you will receive this fullness in the beatific vision. And so tie then this looking for the glorious appearing of Christ in our verse with 1 John 2, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. You know, the beatific vision transforms us because we see Christ as he is. And that's the transforming effect that we find throughout the scriptures, that to behold Christ as he is in the word of God is to be changed by Christ. There's a principle there behind the beatific vision for your life. The more faith beholds the Savior, the more transformed it is. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Even, that's what this verse in 2 Corinthians 3 teaches us, even though we don't see him as clearly as we will in the beatific vision, as we behold him by faith, even now, to behold the glory of the Lord is to be changed by him. Oh, to spend time beholding his glory in the word of God and in edifying sermons and books and conversations with our brethren rather than gaze upon this wretched, wretched world. We would be transformed more and more. Uh, I would recommend to you and commend to you books on Christology then. Um, We've talked about Isaac Ambrose's uh, Looking Unto Jesus, subtitled The Soul's uh, Eyeing of Jesus. Um, Because as the soul eyes Jesus as he is, it is changed. Um, there's a more recent book written by uh, Mark Jones called Knowing Christ, which uh, speaks of Christ's person and offices uh, in, a, in a sort of bite-sized way, which I think would be very useful to some of us. Um, I have spoken to the session as well that it is likely I might preach a series on Christology just so that we might have the benefits of looking unto the glory of God in Jesus Christ and be changed by him to better know him. In addition, we do not set our eyes upon this world, but the world which is to come, which is what we're looking at when we look for his blessed coming. We look forward not to this world, which will be consumed. We affix our eye and renewed, but we fix our eyes upon the paradise where the lamb is front and center. Right? You heard that this morning concerning the second word on the cross. Today shalt thou be with me where? in paradise, this place where we will be before the Lamb of God forever. And you ought to be, you ought to be of this mind. You ought to say, if I were given a billion dollars today, I would be far less excited than to hear, I will be with Christ in paradise. What excites your soul? This thought ought to do it. Set your mind and heart upon Christ, being with him in paradise, friends. We have labored 
throughout the communion season and even before that to set upon us a heavenly affection so that the world and the things of the world can go away so that we could say of a truth, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. Why? That I may win Christ. He is the great prize. What do you labor for in this world? More than that, Philippians 2.8. Let us also remember what we heard of those with faith in Hebrews 11 a few weeks ago. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed they were what? Strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, you might think of Crete, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire what? A better country that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not uh, not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. If you have faith, what must you seek? Your heavenly homeland and not this world. And we remember that the church itself, the kingdom of God on the earth, the kingdom of grace, is the kingdom of glory in seed form. And so even as we look forward to paradise to come, we see here in the congregation of God's people a foretaste of heaven to come. As we have today experienced communion with God and communion with his people, what is that? But the kingdom of glory in seed form. Set your heart and mind upon Christ. Um, We are pilgrims here, and let us never forget it. The ways of this world are not our ways. We have pilgrim ways. We are, you know, we have our forefathers in America who are pilgrims. They were plainly seeking a better country where they could worship God for any deficiencies in the pilgrims or whatever. This was their one of their motivations, to better seek a heavenly country. And it's not America that is the city on a shining hill. It is God's heaven, and it is the church on the earth that is that uh, city, that lampstand, that shines, that beckons all men to God. This is what we live for. We do good for our nation as we can, right? But our heart is set on paradise and not on the earth. But, you know, here's the thing for you with pilgrim ways. God says to you who do, I mulled over this countless, numerous times, and I can only hope that the Lord will give you grace to understand it because it's frankly almost incomprehensible to me. He says, I am not ashamed to be called your God. This is one of the strangest words. Um, I don't know how it is that God could be unashamed to be called my God. But as my faith is in Jesus Christ, I believe by faith he is. And that Christ himself has taken away all my shame, all my ill repute, all of my sinfulness, taken it all away. And this is what makes Christ even more precious to us, isn't it? That makes him far greater than anything on this earth that we could lust for. He has taken all of my shame away, and he is unashamed to call me his. And so God, who has given you his beloved son, who did not spare his own son for you, 
and has put his name upon you by his spirit and in baptism has adopted you into his household, plucked you out of this world and given you a desire for a better country that is in heavenly. You ought to desire and I ought to too to live in a heavenly way. That we would not deny our Lord anything and we would instead take pleasure in denying ourselves everything. Oh, what a thing. God is not ashamed to be called our God while we are ashamed of his ways and who he is at times. Ashamed to tell people of what we are, Christians. Ashamed to tell people we desire to live differently from them. Denying worldliness and ungodly lusts. Ungodliness and worldly lusts. To set apart from the world while we are ashamed of him. This ought to not be the case, brethren, especially as we've considered the Lord. And this realization of what God has done for us ought to produce a great zeal to pursue holiness and good works, which we'll consider in our final heading, zeal for good. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Once again, you find the aim as to why Christ gave himself for us. Let's stop and remember, as the apostle did in another place, why he gave himself for us. Even as we saw it at the table this morning, as the bread was broken and the wine poured, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Our text, it reinforces the voluntary nature of Christ's giving. It was his joy to do it. Why did he do it? That he might redeem us from all iniquity. Praise God. And he died to purify unto himself a peculiar people. A people for his own self. In other words, did he give himself for you that you could give yourself to the world and to sin and the devil? No. Is this the kind of relationship you have with the Savior? Give yourself for me, Jesus, and I will give myself to the world in return. You know what is that, that is called as we've come out of our series on Hosea? Whoredom. Worse than a whore, as you heard in Hosea. You give yourself to sin and the world freely after he gave all of himself for you to redeem you. What a wretched thing that is to even consider. And I think as we've been in a communion season and we thought on the Song of Songs in Ephesians chapter 5, this purification language, it reminds you of the bride in the Song of Solomon. What did we read of in Song of Psalms uh, 3 verse 6? Who is this? Right? Who is this that is now coming with the graces of the Lord? So pure and radiant and heavenly, totally different from her former self, filled with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This one who was once like the Cretans, Liar, evil beast, is now full of heaven's ways. Beautiful, sanctified, glorious. What made the change? Christ purifying her. As Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Here's that language again. Why? The word of God is very, very consistent that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to whom? Himself, 
a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be what? Holy and without blemish. That is it, friends. You are purified unto himself, for himself. You are a peculiar, boys and girls, that means a particular people for himself. Not saved so that you can run off to the world and commit spiritual whoredom. No, he purifies you blessedly so that you can have further communion with him. You know, a bride is told to vow isn't she? And the husband too, but we're considering ourselves as the bride of Christ to forsake all others and to live unto her husband. Oh, beloved, would you see Christ's aim in sanctifying you that you would look to him, be purified by his own hand and then live for him and cleave unto him as your husband, uh, as your life, The bride of Christ is called to be holy and spotless so that her soul may intermingle and have interchanges with Christ, her husband, to be one with him, to cleave unto him, and to adore him, and to live with him. What would it be? And this is why, again, we looked at the book of Hosea, and we think on Gomer having to live with the whore. Is that you? Uh, uh, Hosea having to live with the whore, Gomer, rather. Is that you? Are you Gomer? And in you, his bride is meant to be a zeal for good works. Is this not fitting for Christ's spouse? Now think of your relationship, your family, your husband, right? Are husband and wife not to have the same disposition? Are they not to be labor for the same thing? Is the wife not called in the book of Genesis the helpmeet? Isn't she a companion suited for the husband? And so, of course, when you think on Christ, Would he not choose a bride of the same disposition? He does good. She must do good. Would he not make her like that to live in harmony with him? Uh, This marriage relationship must be central to our thinking. What kind of spouse is suited for Jesus? I must be his helpmate in a sense. You are to have a zeal, a great zeal for good works. Not to be saved by them, but to be zealous for Christ's sake, uh, the fruit of our union with Christ. Be zealous for them. Find them only in the word of God. Not making them up, but do only what the word says. Those are good works. And as you think on that, simply say what the man who wrote Titus 2.14 said of himself. I am crucified with Christ. This is in Galatians. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. At the table, you saw yourself crucified with Christ. And yet you live. And yet you live. And the life that you now live in the flesh, you live by denying yourself and living for the one who loved you, did you forget so soon, and gave himself for you. This is your life in the flesh. Zealous to purify yourself and walk in good works. Lastly, the Apostle Paul informed Timothy to preach with authority. Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. You know, Titus was a minister, not an apostle, and he was told to preach with all authority insofar as he is preaching these things, meaning the word of God. The authority comes, and you must listen to the preached word, 
insofar as this is the word that has been preached. And the aim is to conform you to Christ's will, not to Titus's and not to Rom's will, but to the very will of God. Well, beloved, you have heard many necessary duties this afternoon. Where will the power come to do what seems impossible? The power to deny yourself, to put away ungodliness and worldliness, and to live for Christ, to be zealous for good works, to purify yourself. Where does that power come? You've heard it. It comes by looking unto Jesus, and especially looking unto the grace that you have received at the supper. You are called to exercise the grace you have received to these holy ends. Remember what the apostle said in Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? God forbid, that is a foolish thought. You have been nourished by the spirit on the body and blood of the Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. And it is his grace that will accomplish the ends here. That's why we have his giving of himself. That's why we look unto his coming and the grace of God that brings salvation. It's his grace that will accomplish these things. But as you walk away from this place, remember this. You are not Cretans. You are Christians. Put away the old man and live as the new, setting your affections on Christ. May he help us do it. Amen. Please arise if able for prayer. O our holy God of heaven, we are too earthy and carnal a people. And if it were not for the grace of God, we wouldn't know what to do with that. And yet the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, that we would deny ourselves by the grace of God. And so, Father, you have commanded us, give us grace to do what thou wilt. Um, have us say, each of us, my life is not my own, but it belongs to my precious Savior, my faithful Savior, who loved me and gave himself for me. That the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And having seen the Son of God give himself for us this morning, so vividly in the sacrament, help our life be a living sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God. May we live for the one who gave himself for us. May we love our Savior as our bridegroom. May we live as his wife a helpmeet suited to him, uh, bearing his imprint upon our soul, loving and desiring only him, such that we would look on this world, we would look at sin especially, and say, all done. I don't consider any of that loss really for the gain that is Christ Jesus, my Lord. Oh, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. May you set our affections on him this week and uh, into eternity. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.